Welcome to the Bold Movement Podcast. Every Thursday, you can expect an exegetical approach to scripture as you're led verse by verse through the real stories in the Bible. You can find all episodes of the Bold Movement Podcast for free on iTunes and Spotify. And every Monday, make sure to check out Bold Is. This week, join Meg as she teaches you God's Word and discover why, to this day, it's still as relevant and significant as it was then. Are you ready to be bold? Here's your host, Megan Rollins. Hi, guys, and thanks for listening to the Bold Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Rollins. In this episode, we're going to look at Esther chapter 8, and before we do that, I want to mention to you that we are able to continue podcast episodes like this because of listeners like you who donate to our Patreon. If you like what you hear, would you consider becoming a part of the Bold Movement? Our plans range from a dollar a month. <clears throat> Sorry. Hi guys, and thanks for listening to the Bold Movement podcast. I'm your host, Megan Rawlings. In this episode, we're going to look at Esther chapter 8. Before we do that, I want to mention to you that we are able to continue podcast episodes like this because of listeners like you who donate to our Patreon. If you like what you hear, would you consider becoming a partner of the Bold Movement? Our plans range from a dollar a month to $50 a month with exciting incentives for growing Christian women. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Bold Movement. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. I'm so glad you found us. Here's how we work. We'll read a couple of verses of scripture, and then we stop to discuss what it means. With that being said, let's dive on in. Today we are reading from the English Standard Version, commonly referred to as the ESV. On that day, King Assyrus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him he was what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Sorry, guys, I can't English. (laughs) There is evidence that the property of criminals who were condemned went to the king. So the fact that he's giving Queen Esther the house of Haman means, one, Haman was condemned. Two, it was a gift to Esther as a token of, like, goodwill. The ring is included. Property in this sense means everything he owned. Esther then set Mordecai over the house, and this is the same language used when Pharaoh made Joseph second in command in Egypt in the book of Genesis. And let's go on to verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him, and avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Y'all, let me explain the whole golden scepter thing again. It's not every day that a king holds out a golden scepter. According to Joyce Baldwin, who we're going to be using a lot today, the golden scepter on the occasion permits Esther to rise like the dubbed knight in English ceremonial and stand before the monarch. With due deference, she makes her plea. Verse 5 says, And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eye, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? 
or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? According to Baldwin, the repetition of the verb expresses the depth of Esther's empathy with the suffering of others. It is very moving to see the extent to which this young girl, who has everything money can buy, identify herself with her own kith and kin, and is prepared to risk everything in an attempt to prevent the disaster that threatens them. Then King Asura said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. The king is repeating what he had done to remind Esther and Mordecai of what things took place to show how he was favorably disposed toward the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The you that's used here is indeed plural. He is talking to both Mordecai and Esther. He wanted these two to draft the new decree. And Baldwin says that though it was impossible for the king to take back any word that had gone out in his name, the same effect could be achieved by a later edict, similarly authenticated. (laughs) Say that five times fast. He had his ways and means of of achieving his will. The king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the twenty-third day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So this is going out to a hundred and twenty-seven provinces every single one in their own script and their own language so that they can understand it. In addition to the Jews, which is huge here um, because they need to know what's going on, right? And so the scribes were called up, which was the historical custom of writing an edict. But I want you to pay close attention here. Listen to this. The author of Esther repeats the previous wording of Haman's edict in chapter 3. The only thing changed was the name, date, intention, and a few small things added from 1-1. And Baldwin says this is done because the effect is to draw attention to the suddenness with which an official can rise to power, pass his laws, and just as suddenly fall and be replaced. So the dates here actually articulate to us that there is a time lapse of two months and ten days since Haman's edict was written. This shows the indication that the story, as we read it, is quite possibly condensed. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Asuras and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he set the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses and were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the province of King Asuras, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, you guys, this is serious stuff. So Mordecai writes the decree in the name of the king and then sends this out through the king's services. But... Let's look at what gave the Jews permission for every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces and all of that great stuff. 
So I'm totally going to quote Baldwin here, and it's quite a long quote, but you'll see why. Baldwin says, This verse has given rise to the opinion that the Jews sought the right to kill the defenseless women and children of the countries in which they were exiles, and understandably, this has raised ethical issues which have caused the book to be condemned. The verse is translated in such a way as to eliminate any ambiguity such as such as is found in the RSV and to support the bloodthirsty view that exact revenge was being taken on the total population. And the Good News Bible, for example, has if they were attacked by armed men or um, any nationality in any province, they could fight back and destroy them along with their wives and children. They could slaughter them to the last man and take their possessions. Commentators have been almost unanimous that this is the meaning of the text. At the same time, they often comment on the improbability that permission would be given by the king for such wholesale slaughter of the Persian population, even though the whole Jewish race had been so threatened. The thought is that this Esther story works out the retribution theme of the Old Testament by permitting and even glorifying in the outworking of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so proving its barbarity by comparison with the new. But is that necessarily so? As has already been pointed out, the decree of Haman in 3.13 is reflected in that of Mordecai, and some of its wording is repeated in the later decree, but the differences also need to be taken into account. In 3.13, there is no doubt about the meaning. The object of the verb annihilate follows immediately all Jews, young and old, women and children. In 8.11, on the other hand, the object of the verb is any armed force that might attack, while them with their children and women, is the object of the verb attack. This is the way in which NIV interprets the meaning, and indeed it is the plain sense of the text. Whatever ethical objection may be raised against the action of the Jews as recorded in this book, at least they should be not be based on the verse, misunderstanding as it has commonly been. I know that was a huge quote, and I should have paraphrased it, but Baldwin said it in such a way that it was easy to understand, and, and I'm one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, let's look at verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance of their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode and hurriedly urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. This is a huge difference from what we saw in 4.3. This, this decree was accepted and celebrated. The old one was mourned by the Jews, and they fasted and prayed. Verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Ah, I love some good evangelism and I love when God gets the glory. Thank you so much for studying the book of Esther with me. I'll be back next week when we dive into Esther chapter 9 and 10. And we'll wrap that book up and then we'll pick a new book from the New Testament. The Bold Movement is an online women's ministry dedicated to teaching women how to handle the Word of God. 
This is a quick reminder that you can partner with us through our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the bold movement. Okay, ladies, until next time, go out and be bold.